Hey, welcome to the Bible Savvy Podcast, a weekly conversation on how to understand, enjoy, and apply God's Word. I'm your host, Nikki Lucas, and I'm joined by Executive Pastor Eric Ferris and Teaching Pastor Clayton Keenan. We're about to jump into another passage from the Bible Savvy Reading Plan, but before we do, guys, I gotta know, what's the weirdest thing in your fridge right now? The weirdest thing the weirdest in the thing. fridge. Clayton, you want to go first? Sure. Um, well, it could be the fact that we have like six different varieties of mustard. So my my wife and kids are mustard connoisseurs. So that there's that. But I, I realized after thinking of that, that the weirdest thing in our fridge is is in our basement fridge. And it's mealworms because we have we have a gecko. Uh, no, yeah, gecko. Gizmo the gecko. He's a gecko. Yeah. Uh, so... <laughs> Uh, so Gizmo uh, eats mealworms, and you have to keep mealworms uh, alive, but you don't want them to progress in their life cycle. So you put them in the fridge, and they go dormant. So then you take them out to feed the the lizard, and so that's why we have that. And then I realized growing up, we also had reptiles in our home, but we had large reptiles like pythons. So uh, we had rats in our fridge growing up in a freezer. Uh, so I realized that was the weirdest thing growing up in my my fridge, but we don't have that now. We just have worms. Mealworms. That's a strong answer. Wow. Yeah. Okay. So a few minutes before recording this podcast episode, I learned that this was going to be the question and I had no idea what was in my fridge. So I FaceTimed my wife and she showed me a video of what's inside our refrigerator. And so I have two answers. The first is there's a bunch of bananas in the fridge. Bananas do not belong in the refrigerator. My wife explained to me that they're going bad, so she is they're in the fridge to slow down them going bad. Like your mealworms. Like the mealworms. Wow. Yeah. And then, wow. And, then, and then often what happens with our bananas is they end up in the freezer because then we make smoothies out of them and stuff. Yes. So yeah. yeah, banana bread. Yeah. Uh, the other answer is, and this isn't weird as much as it's just annoying, one of my daughters constantly makes drinks, <laughs> drinks about a quarter of it, and then puts the cup with the straw in the fridge. So it's just sitting there becoming some kind of science experiment. Did she ever come back to drink no, it? Never. No, never. Not once in her entire life has she gone back come to the on, fridge girl. to finish the drink. <laughs> no, it just gets gross and fuzzy and curdled. <laughs> wow. And then it becomes unidentifiable. And then we glub, 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 pour it out in the sink. Well, that's that's weird. That's weird. That's Nikki? weird. Um, mine would be ghost pepper hot sauce. Ooh. It's weird because I don't, I, I can do spicy, but not like that hot. So my dad had brought this little bottle of hot sauce and he was like, here. And I was like, I, I'm never going to like eat this. What, what, what do you want me to do with these? Like, I don't know. I just thought it was cool. <laughs> and I was like, okay, so it's setting in my fridge, staying cool or chilled in case I ever get tempted to want to try ghost pepper hot sauce. How, how long will it sit there un, unused before you throw it out? Or I do you just decide, you know, like, no, I'm never going to use it? That's a good question. I'll probably decide I'm never going to use it. And when it's back in the corner for a good while, I'll probably toss it out. What would happen if we marinated Clayton's mealworms with Ugh. the ghost pepper hot sauce and then fed the mealworms to Gizmo the gecko? <laughs> or if we put the ghost pepper sauce in my daughter's <laughs> drink and then asked her to finish it? I think be, there's some uses for this ghost pepper use. sauce. Well, maybe I need to bring it to work. 
All right, Clayton, what passage are we looking All at today? All right, we are in the book of Ezekiel. Uh, we are starting Ezekiel for the next uh, few weeks here. This is a brand new book. It's a strange book, uh, so a little context will help. So uh, like always, when you're starting a new book, we recommend uh, getting context. The Bible Project has great videos, uh, as always, about Ezekiel. It's worth the time. It's kind of a two-parter, uh, but it's it's definitely worth, worth watching both. Uh, another thing to know is last week, we put out a, uh, a special episode podcast where I interviewed uh, Dr. Michael Graves, who is an Old Testament scholar, about how to read the book of Ezekiel. So if you haven't listened to that episode, go back and listen to that. Was, was Michael as enjoyable as me and Nikki? Did you have as good a time? Uh, you know what? Just, answer carefully. Just, just in case Dr. Graves listens to this, I'm not. I'm not going to answer. But you guys are also in the room, so I'm going to say you guys are are more fun. You but, just answered. But I also I love Dr. Graves. So uh, both are both are good. Both are good. We'll let we'll let listeners decide. It, you know if they if they prefer one or the other. Um, the other thing you can do to help you get some context and some uh, help as we go through the book of Ezekiel, because it is it is a unfamiliar book for people. Um, we are actually preaching through uh, some of the passages in Bible Savvy over the course of the next uh, six weeks. So uh, go ahead and, and listen to those. Hopefully, all together that will give you some bearings on a book that you otherwise might find challenging uh, without a little bit of help. But let me give you some context for this passage. We're going to be in Ezekiel chapter 5, and the thing you need to know historically is that uh, the uh, people of Israel, so we've told this story several times over the last year because we've been telling books that all happened during this era, but the people of Israel split into two kingdoms uh, partway through their, their history. The northern kingdom was called Israel, and it got taken over by the Assyrians. The southern kingdom was called Judah, and Judah continued to exist for a century or two. And then because of their sin, God allowed the Babylonian Empire to come in and attack them. And it kind of happened in a couple of stages. We call this the exile, but it happened in a couple of stages. The Babylonians came in and they took, the first time they invaded, they took some of the elite people in uh, Judah and took them away to Babylon. So if you've ever heard the stories of like Daniel in the lion's den, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, these sorts of stories, that's what happened. Those are some people who were living in Judah, who are part of the elite, and they were taken away to Babylon to sort of be re-educated and enculturated into Babylon. And one of the people who was taken in that sort of deportation was a guy named Ezekiel. So Ezekiel uh, would have been a priest in uh, if he was still in Jerusalem, but he gets taken away to the land of Babylon, and he is living there. Now, when Ezekiel is prophesying, as we're about to read, um, Jerusalem still exists. So the prophet Jeremiah is over in Jerusalem. He's prophesying in Jerusalem. Ezekiel's off in Babylon, and he is prophesying there. And so uh, both of them are trying to give messages to the Jewish people scattered between those who are left in Jerusalem and those who are off in Babylon, saying, hey, there's still more trouble on the way. You still need to repent. So that's some of the context as we read Ezekiel chapter 5. Now, son of man, take a sharp sword and use it as a barber's razor to shave your head and your beard. Then take a set of scales and divide up the hair. When the days of your siege come to an end, burn a third of the hair inside the city. Take a third and strike it with the sword all around the city and scatter a third to the wind, for I will pursue them with drawn sword. But take a few hairs and tuck them away in the folds of your garment. Again, take a few of these and throw them into the fire and burn them up. A fire will spread from there to all Israel. This is what the sovereign Lord says. This is Jerusalem, which I have set in the center of the nations, with countries all around her. 
Yet in her wickedness, she has rebelled against my laws and decrees more than the nations and countries around her. She has rejected my laws and has not followed my decrees. Therefore, this is what the sovereign Lord says. You have been more unruly than the nations around you and have not followed my decrees or kept my laws. You have not even conformed to the standards of the nations around you. Therefore, this is what the sovereign Lord says. I myself am against you, Jerusalem, and I will inflict punishment on you in the sight of the nations. Because of all of your detestable idols, I will do to you what I have never done before and will never do again. Therefore, in your midst, parents will eat their children and children will eat their parents. I will inflict punishment on you and will scatter all your survivors to the winds. Therefore, as surely as I live, declares the Sovereign Lord, because you have defiled my sanctuary with all your vile images and detestable practices, I myself will shave you. I will not look on you with pity or spare you. A third of your people will die of the plague or perish by famine inside you. A third will fall by the sword outside your walls. And a third I will scatter to the winds and pursue with drawn sword. Then my anger will cease and my wrath against them will subside. And I will be avenged. And when I have spent my wrath on them, they will know that I, the Lord, have spoken in my zeal. I will make you a ruin and a reproach among the nations around you in the sight of all who pass by. You will be a reproach and a taunt, a warning and an object of horror to the nations around you when I inflict punishment on you in anger and in wrath and with stinging rebuke. I, the Lord, have spoken. When I shoot at you with my deadly and destructive arrows of famine, I will shoot to destroy you. I will bring more and more famine upon you and cut off your supply of food. I will send famine and wild beasts against you, and they will leave you childless. Plague and bloodshed will sweep through you, and I will bring the sword against you. I, the Lord, have spoken. All right, let's talk about the O and comma, which is observation. What do you guys see in this passage? There's just a lot of scary stuff happening in this passage. It's, it's kind of terrifying when you read it. A lot of vivid and shocking images pop up into your mind, you know. Um, even like reading it earlier and then hearing Eric reread it, it's just like, whoa, it's a little overwhelming. Um, yeah, I was thinking, is this the least fun chapter in the entire Bible? <laughs> it's, yeah, it's definitely not a, a cheery, joyful kind of thing. Absolutely not. It's pretty intense. The, the verse that stuck out to me, even though the entire chapter is very serious, is verse 10. Yeah. Parents will eat their children and children will eat their parents. If you're just kind of reading along, yeah. you think, well, I, I didn't see that Whoa. coming. Yeah, that, that one's intense. That's and and we uh most of us have not been in the kinds of situations where this happens, but in, in an ancient city, you have to remember that part of um what happens in war is that they lay siege, which means they try to prevent food that would be coming in from farms outside of the city from coming into the city, and that's part to put pressure on the people who are there. And so when it describes this, it's not just a random like suddenly cannibalism broke out. It's the desperation of you've been in a city where food has not been getting in. And over time, what 
what do you do to survive? And it eventually is you eat those who have already died. And so it's it's not that these are people suddenly becoming, you know, zombie kind of thing. You know what I mean? Like it's it's the desperation of a family member who would eat a, fa- a, a dead family member. Yeah. It's um, not the zombie apocalypse. It's real. Yeah. It's real life ancient warfare. It, yeah. And, and, and frankly, it's sometimes modern warfare. If you look at conflicts, you know, around the world, there, things like this, it, we get close because people get in desperate situations where they don't have food. What else do you see? The other thing I seen it was um, what is it? I think it's like six times I think I counted it. We see that repeated phrase like this is what the sovereign Lord says, the sovereign Lord says or uh, declares the sovereign Lord or I the Lord have spoken. Like we see this and well we know from other places in the Bible that when God speaks he does. Another thing that stuck out to me is the Lord saying to Israel, you have actually become worse than mm-hmm. all of the godless nations around you. And I think it says it like three or four times it points it out. Yeah, and it's it's strange because the exact point of God calling out Israel was to be surrounded by all the nations and be different. And so yeah. to be different in the wrong way is like this ironic inversion thing. Um, I, I noticed just this image that God uses um, of like shaving the hair and then burning like one third, one third, you know, like doing different things with different portions of the hair. I, I'm not really sure why that particular imagery. I mean, the, the meaning is somewhat clear because it explains it. You know, it says, you know, you're going to do this with a third of the hair, this with a third of the hair, this is with a third of the hair. And it goes on to say, well, this is going to happen to a third of your population, a third of your population. These are the tragedies that are going to come. But why hair? I, I'm not really sure. It's just kind of strange. The, the best I've got is that sometimes there's a sense of disgrace. If you shave someone, it's like suddenly it's, you know, it's like a sense of, you know, nakedness or a sense of, you know, embarrassment or shame or something like that. But I I'm not sure. That sound means it's time for your comma tip of the week. And this week's tip is an invitation to join me for the How to Study the Bible workshop. Having the right tools for the job makes all the difference. In this highly interactive hands-on workshop, you will gain the necessary tools for studying and correctly handling the Word of God in order to give you confidence to study the Bible for yourself, engage in Bible study in a group setting, and integrate your prayer life with your Bible study life. So join me for the next How to Study the Bible workshop. This class assumes basic knowledge of the Bible. For example, the difference between the Old and New Testament, knowing what the Gospels are, who Paul is, and the general storyline of the Bible. Someone who is brand new to the Bible should take our What's in the Bible or How to Read the Bible classes. Go online and register. And this has been your comma tip of the week. Uh, Another thing that I saw in verse, uh, I think it's 15, you will be a reproach and a taunt, a warning and an object of horror to the nations around you. He's going to make an example of Jerusalem um, to even say, like, this is what the God of Israel is about. Like, he doesn't like wickedness and he avenges it. Like, he's, he's making an example of them. One of my observations isn't from the text itself, but it's from the contextual setup you gave, which is you have Jeremiah during this time prophesying in Judah, but Ezekiel is away in Babylon. And it's just interesting to me that the very, this is a very fierce direct prophecy happening from a distance. Now, Jeremiah wasn't pulling any punches either, 
But nonetheless, I find it interesting that Ezekiel is in Babylon prophesying back to Judah these things. I noticed a little interesting detail as I went back and looked at this uh, this perplexing image of the hair. Um, in verse three, for, after it says, "Take a third of the hair and you know and throw it around, a third of the hair and burn it, or whatever," um, it says, uh, "Take a few hairs and tuck them away in the folds of your garment," which. It's just a, it just feels odd, but there's like a little bit of like hope in that, right? That there, there's going to be a remnant that survived, that Mm -hmm. this is not going to be a total destruction that God isn't done with his people, even though this is going to be absolutely devastating. There is still that bit of, I'm going to tuck some away and I'm going to keep preserving this people. There's uh, a, a bittersweet hope in that. Oh, wow. I didn't even read it like that. That's an, that's an interesting take on that. I was very simply reading that as kind of taking along a reminder with you. Like this is what the the sovereign law says, sovereign Lord says he's going to do. So carry around a few of these hairs to remind you that this is what's going to go down. Yeah. Yeah. Perhaps. Yeah. Uh, Another observation I have here is the repeated phrase of the detestable idols. There's a, there's a sense of revulsion to it. And um, I, you know, I wanted, I wondered what about it makes it detestable, you know, this strong visceral reaction, you know, it's, it seems like if God's going to take this really strong judgment, it's because there's a strong, uh, you know, disgust with what's going on. And why is that? And a, a clue that I came across was um, when it says in verse 11, you have defiled my sanctuary with your vile images and detestable practices. So it's, the idea that in the temple itself, the place that God set up for worship for him, they're worshiping other gods. They're setting up idols and images there. And I think sometimes we don't we don't um, register how significant the temple was to uh, the, the nation of Israel and certainly in what God intended it to be. Um, a couple of images that help with that, sometimes when you come across the, the temple or the tabernacle, thinking of this might help. It was meant to be a little bit of like a window into Eden. You know, a lot of the imagery looks like the Garden of Eden kind of imagery. So you're saying this is a perfect holy place and you're going to and in a place where you're going to meet with God and you're going to bring those things in and defile paradise was the kind of the idea. Or another way to think about it is um, there are some times when it is almost described as kind of the, the place where God meets with his people and the, the marriage between God and his people is symbolized in there. And there's a sense that if you take an idol into this place where you're meant to, to be with God, connect with God, worship God, it's like committing adultery in your own bedroom. It's like, you know what, I'm going to, I'm going to bring, you know, my lover into this place and my, and my spouse is going to find out that I'm sleeping with them in my bed. And there is a sense of like, there is a strong reaction to that. This isn't just, oh, oh dear, you've broken a rule. It's like, you have personally betrayed me. And there's a sense that the, the calling of Israel to be close to God, to be wedded to God, um, was thrown away lightly for something cheap. And so that's where some of the detestable revulsion comes in. Another observation I have is in verse 6. Let me read it and then uh, share my observation. Yet in her wickedness, she has rebelled against my laws and decrees more than the nations and countries around her. She has rejected my laws and has not followed my decrees. Those are intentional acts, rebellion and rejection. So in 
in uh, the covenant that God set up with his people and in the, the sacrificial system that was meant to deal with sin, God seems to differentiate between intentional and unintentional sins. There's different sacrifices and different ways that God dealt with. So an unintentional sin would be you made a mistake. You really are trying to live for God. You, you really did have the right motivation. You messed up because you have a sinful nature. Um, or you forgot something. And so unintentional sins were dealt with a certain way. There's a different category of intentional. You willingly, knowingly knew what was right and you didn't do it, or you willingly and knowingly knew it was wrong and you did it anyway. So verse six again, yet in her wickedness, she has rebelled against my laws and she has rejected my laws. This, this isn't some unintentional, oops, I'm a sinful person and every once in a while I mess up. This was a willful, intentional rejection of God. All right, let's go on to one of the M's in comma. We're going to start with message today. So we're going to take something we observed, and we're going to show how, from that observation, we get a a principle that we could apply to our lives. So what's your message? Uh, My message actually comes from that verse that Eric just read, um, and it's as simple as God wants us to follow him. My observation is similar to Nikki's, but perhaps zoomed out a bit. I would, I would say the message I'm taking away from this entire chapter in Ezekiel is God is paying attention. Hmm. Uh, my message comes from that repeated idea of God's, uh, that the, the idols are detestable. And so I just said, God detests our idols. All right, let's talk about the other M in common. Let's, let's go to meditation. Now with a, a passage like this one, there's not, you know, a great one-liner where you're like, oh, I really want to mull this over and kind of pray this through. But there is an overall sense of, God is calling out the people's sin. And I think whenever we come across passages like this, one of the ways that we meditate on the passage is to be reflective in our own life and to take a moment to confess sin to God. So I'm going to give you about 45 seconds. Obviously, that's something that might take longer than that. But here, here we'll give you 45 seconds to do that. Let's talk about the A in comma, application. What do you do in response to this? All right. So my message is God wants us to follow him. So, you know, similar to what you said during the the meditation is reflection, asking, you know, ourselves, like, is there an area in, you know, my life where I'm, I'm not following how God would want me to follow him and asking for his help and then getting some accountability in that area, you know, people from people in my life, um, to pray for me and help help walk alongside me if I'm struggling in an area that I discover. Right, my message is that God is paying attention, and so my application is that I should expect a sovereign Lord to do sovereign things. Um, so the sovereign Lord is paying attention to his world, and it is his to judge, 
it is his to forgive. It is his to make rules and laws and to decide what is right and what is wrong and how, how things should work. And so my, my application is very simply to do my very best to try to live in alignment with what the sovereign Lord has said and how he created the world to work. My message is that God detests our idolatry, and uh, the application then is if God detests it, we should detest it. So there's there's a certain cultivating of uh, it, it might sound weird, but disgust for our own sin. Um, sometimes when we sin, we recognize there are consequences for this, and we fear the consequences, and that's that's an appropriate thing to do. But there's like a deeper layer of fighting sin, which is actually seeing sin the way God does, and actually feeling the, about it the way God feels about it. So th- this is a, a challenging exercise. It takes time, but. Uh, over time, as you confess sin, to not just say, hey, I'm going to acknowledge it, but to actually say, God, I want you to show me why this is offensive to you. And some of that might be reflecting on the effect it has on people. So if you if you, if you struggle with anger and you say, let, let me imagine the effect it has on my family or my coworkers or my friends when I lose my temper, or maybe I think, how does this offend God? Why would it be insulting to him when I get angry about little things or I or I take, uh, you know, like I say, this is for me to control when it's really his to control. And it's it's an insult to him to say I would be offended at this or where, where there are different ways that this um, becomes a problem and you actually start to feel like, no, this is bad. It's not just against the rules. Okay, I won't do it. But like, I don't like that this is the case. And there's something really appropriate and something very powerful about being able to fight your sin from the same attitude that God has, which is, it's disgusting to me and I don't want it in my life. That's really good. All right, friends, that's it. Thanks for listening this week. Join us again next Monday for a new episode. We'll be looking at another passage from the Bible Savvy Reading Plan. In the meantime, if you are not following along, check out BibleSavvy.com to download it and start reading with us today. Also, you can subscribe and leave a review on whatever platform you're listening on. Email us your questions or suggestions at podcast at BibleSavvy.com. Lastly, tell your friends. We'll talk to you next week.